It is with a sense of uh, fear and intrepidation that uh, I turn the subject at hand tonight. This was not my idea. For a couple of weeks, I have wrestled with this passage of scripture, and I believe the Lord wants to be shared with you tonight. I do not feel adequate even to touch the opening verse, but I have to be obedient to push the Holy Spirit. So I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. But before I say anything else, I need to talk to my master. I pray, Lord Jesus, the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, will be pleasing and acceptable to you, my Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer. I thank you for the excellence of your word. I thank you for the extravagance of your grace which allows your word to come alive by the Holy Spirit. And so I pray tonight that you'll take the feeble words and cause them to become life and strength and health and peace to this beautiful people. For I ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter it must never be forgotten that while John makes use of idiomatic Greek and Latin, his basic instinct is always Jewish or Hebrew. Another matter of significance which ought to be evident, and that is while we look at this book because of its magnificent eschatological expression, the doctrine of the future things, the eschatology does not really start until chapter six. That's when John begins to perceive that which is to come. John, in chapter one, has a vision of Jesus, and he is overwhelmed by what he sees and by what he senses. In chapters two and three, John is given a specific word to share with the seven churches over which he had some form of rulership or authority or functioned as an apostle. We know that John spent a lot of time in Ephesus. And though it was the apostle Paul who wrote the epistle which is called the epistle to Ephesus. It wasn't written to Ephesus. It was a general letter 
which was sent to all the church of Asia Minor, but because it was found in Ephesus, it was given the title of Ephesus. But John is trying to unveil the heart of Jesus and share the message of Jesus to people. And it is a difficult task because it is almost impossible to perceive that which is not easily seen through the natural eye or appreciated by the natural mind. And so John is trying to have a go. Now there are skeptics which look at John and say, says, well, he was just trying to copy. You're trying to copy, first of all, that which had been revealed on Mount Sinai, as documented in um, Exodus chapter 19. The others simply say that John is trying to mirror that which had been the experience of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where he simply said, I saw the king, high and lifted up. Others think he's copying Ezekiel in chapter 1, where Ezekiel speaks of seeing the grandeur and the greatness of God. I am not prepared to accept any of those ideas. I believe John was favored by the grace of God to see things which no other person had ever seen and became witness to that which was absolutely and totally unique. It opens up by simply saying this, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. The voice I heard, I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I'll show you what must take place after this. I want to look at this chapter in the context of three very, very simple things. I want to look at what I call the mystery. I want us to consider the majesty. And I want us to consider the ministry. All these three things are interwoven like threads in a tapestry. But please understand we're not just looking at a text. It's easy to read the Bible as though you're reading just another book. We are not just reading a text, whether we're reading it in the original language or in the local language of our day. We are reading the Word of God. And as such, it's authoritative, it's inspired, it is profitable for every individual in one form or another. And so let's begin to look at the mystery. And it's found in the first verse and the first part of verse 2. And there are five pertinent things said about this mystery in this opening verse and in the early part of verse 2. After this, that underscores what I call a special period. John had been commissioned by the risen Lord in chapter 1 
in which the Lord had simply said to him, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now that's the way we say it in English. John was commanded to interact with the leaders of the seven churches over which he had some influence. Therefore, each letter to each church is opened up by the term to the angel or to the messenger or to the pastor of the church. He's not just speaking to the, or the regular congregation. He's going to speak to the leader. And from the leader, he'll go to the congregation. And the reason for this, whenever there's a corrective word, it needs to come through the top. And uh, coming through the top is not a pleasant experience, either for the congregation or for the leader, but it has to be done. And so John is speaking to the leader, and he gives a particular word and a personal word to each one describing the condition of the church as the Lord saw it. I think that John was shocked by what he heard from the Lord. I think the pastor was terrified by what he heard. The Lord has a higher standard of evaluation than ours. The church has the propensity to slacken and to lower the standard, to make it more convenient, to make it easy, or to make it a common term, seeker sensitive. Don't offend anyone, don't ruffle anybody's feathers. Although I must be honest, I've never seen anybody with feathers. Whatever, whatever that means. But to make it nice and palatable. The standard set by the Lord Jesus is high. It's lofty. And the reason for that is he did not die to produce a flippant church. He did not die and rise to have a sloppy church. He died and rose that he might have a pure church without spot or blemish that would reflect the glory of his name and the honor of his purpose. Obviously, that didn't mean anything to you, so let me go on. <laughs> Second idea, the serial portal. This is both a spiritual term and a pseudoscientific term. He says, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. The Orthodox Jewish Bible is a little more eloquent. It says, I looked, and he knew. The term he knew, but look carefully. Behold is the way it's translated 
in the, in the old King James. It's uh, excluded in the NIV. But he gets this voice, which simply says, I looked and behold, he knew. There was a dalet, a door having been opened in the Hashemaim, in the heavens. Now, I think I'm gonna have to hurry. I paused when I read this because the last church, the last letter to the last church that John had written prior to this, it was the church of the closed door in which the Lord himself said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open up, I will come in and commune with him and he with me. Let us hear. Oliadeki, the church of the closed door. And yet here we're looking towards heaven and it's the, and it's the place of the open door. I like that. That does something deep within my spirit. It's the open door. There's, it's a place where we can have access. But let me look and say, first of all, heaven is an actual place. In primitive uh, astronomy, the heavens are measured in such terms as atmosphere, stratmosphere, ionosphere, etc., etc., etc. The actual location of heaven was always a matter of speculation. But one thing for sure, it was considered to be far, far away. You get this from the, the song the church had to sing. We talked about over the sunset or somewhere beyond the blue, there's a mansion for me. And so because of this distance, the church has always wondered, how long does it take to, get, to go to heaven? Well, you know, it takes a couple of days to go to the moon. <laughs> if it travels at the speed of light, it, it takes eight minutes to get the sun. If you want to go at the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, it takes uh, four and a half light years, which at a regular travel of a spacecraft, it would take 40,000 years. You know, that's a long way. And that takes a long time. Where's heaven? I submit to you, heaven is closer than you think. It's an actual place. Heaven is an accessible place. It has a door. And the door can be opened. And it certainly can be reached by prayer. But this term, door, in pseudoscience, the term is portal. 
portal represents the ability to move from one dimension to another. That we, being creatures of time and space, are limited in a dimensional arena. As the portal speaks of trans-dimensional movement. How long did it take Jesus to go to heaven from earth? Well, we know we can go to heaven in prayer almost instantaneously. Because if we seek, we find. If we knock, it's opened. We know that when we die, that uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord, which is far better. Yeah, but that's the spirit migrating, or the soul migrating. How long is it take to go to heaven? If it's that far distance, how long? Can you hazard a guess? Well, it had to be less than 12 years. Why did he say that? Because Jesus talked to Paul from heaven. So he had to be in heaven after 12 years, in 12 years. But that's not strong enough. He had to be in heaven within 10 days. How do I know? Because Jesus tarried in Jerusalem to receive power from on high. Because I will ask the Father and he will give unto you the Holy Spirit. And so, on the day of Pentecost, 10 days after the, the migration of the Lord to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes. So Jesus must have been in heaven. Portals. Portals are not subject to time. You just migrate from one to another in a twinkle of an eye. Now, in pseudoscience and pseudo-religious exp expression, they look for portals. In fact, if you, if you study New Age or some of the other most modern uh, religious sciences, you find that they are looking for portals, energy zones on planet Earth, because they believe that where those energy zones are, that's where you're able to migrate. We know the Tower of Babel. They were trying to build a portal. They said, build to reach heaven. They weren't talking about building a skyscraper. They wanted to find a way to get from one dimension to another. And God said, I'm going to have to stop this. Otherwise, there'll be nothing they won't be able to do if they can break through the dimensional barrier. And yet, every time we pray, we break through a dimensional barrier. Even the times when we pray, it seems as though the prayer just dribbles off your, off your lip. Have you ever had that experience? Or you pray and it just hit the head to see it and come bouncing down? At times like that, I always pray in the spirit. 
and I know full well that I have immediate access because he that speaketh in an unknown tongue is not speaking to other jokers, my translation, not Paul, but he's speaking directly to God. It's an accessible place. But it's also an authoritative place. It's a place of divine authority because it is the location of his throne. We look at that a little more in detail in a few minutes. But look at the significant announcement. And the voice I first heard, chapter 1, verse 10, the loud voice of the Lord Jesus sounded like a shofar. In verse 10, in verse 15, his voice like the sound of rushing waters. Speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. The invitation is not just to look in, but to step in. To ascend upward above the pressures of time and space. The steady purpose for him going through this portal. I will show you what must take place in the future. And so it was not just to be a euphoric experience. It was not just be an exciting interlude. It was an unveiling of something which cannot be seen or perceived or received in any other way except through revelation. It is this expression of revelation which brings both enlightenment and encouragement. Every day, I pray the two prayers of Paul that are documented in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1 and chapter 3. I pray that the eyes of my understanding might be enlightened, that I might know. Because no matter how much a person knows, it's just a stop in a bucket because there's so much to know, so much to perceive, so much to understand. And here is John. And if, if there was any boy that knew much, it was John. He'd been so close to the master. In fact, in many ways, he was the closest to the master. At the, la at the Last Supper, John had his head leaning upon the chest of the Lord Jesus. It is thought that Peter was leaning on John because when Jesus simply said, uh, that one's going to betray me, Peter said to John, ask him who it is. And the amazing thing is that the head of Jesus was on the, was on the chest of Judas. He said, the one with whom I sup. And so he takes the bread, tips it, in the soup and gives it to Judas. Incredible. But look next, the spiritual posture. Because John says, at once, I was in the Ruach HaKodesh. Now, this statement is very controversial because folk ask, how does one become in the spirit? 
Well, most evangelical scholars propose this is the result of providential determination. It's an act of God. Yeah, I, I agree that there are times when it's a providential determination. But because I'm a charismatic or classical Pentecostal, I believe it's the result of personal desire. It's an act of my will. I choose whether I want to walk in the spirit or walk after the flesh. I choose whether I'm going to pray in the spirit or pray in uh, my native tongue. I choose whether I'm going to sing in the spirit or sing in my native tongue. I choose. It's a result of my human decision and human choice. The statement is also controversial because of what did, that, what did John mean? In the spirit. Well, some take it theoretically, simply saying, well, it was a moment of ecstasy. I like being in moments of ecstasy. I thrill of the times in church when I get excited, when something stirs and vibrates the strings of my heart and the strings of my spirit. I say, hallelujah, do it again. <laughs> do it some more. Others accept it practically, which I believe is what happened here. Somehow, John was transported beyond the realm of time into the realm of eternity. While still on the Isle of Patmos physically, he soared by the Spirit. Paul speaks of a similar experience. I know a man who was transported to the third heavens in the flesh or out the flesh. I do not know. But the experience was real. Let me give you a hint. If the Lord invites you to do something, he will enable you to do it. He heard the voice. Come up here. Where's the ladder? <laughs> How do I climb? He said, immediately I was in the spirit. Because divine invitations are always accompanied by divine enablement. No matter what the issue is, no matter how big, no matter how significant or otherwise, the call to you that comes from the Lord is, he will give you the ability and enable you to do it. Yes. Obviously, that didn't mean anything, so let me go on. <laughs> the spiritual posture. I was in the spirit. This brings me to the second thought. I want us to look at the majesty. I wish I could turn the clock back 30 years. That that which is in my spirit 
and that which is in my mind would be able to come out a little more precisely through my mouth. But those days are long since gone. But there are two powerful truths documented from verse 2 to verse 8, the first part of verse 8. Again, we get the word hini, behold, in heaven stood a kiss, a throne. The NIV says this right once, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven. Now, thrones symbolize government and power. Now, please understand, John is an old man. He's close to 90. That's old. Ask me about it. I know. It's old. He has gone through all kinds of issues in his life. They tried to kill him by throwing him in a vat or boiling oil, and he survived. He's gotten this word from the Lord, are the conditions of the churches that they're not what they ought to be. John is there because of injustice perpetrated by the Roman authorities. It seemed as though everything was out of sync. Evil seemed to be in control. Truth had fallen in the street. No sense of justice. Everything seemed to be in chaos. Until the open door showed him something different. He saw a throne which reminded him God is in control. It doesn't matter what man might try to do or woman might try to do or try to say. It doesn't matter the intent of the, of the evil ones. God is in control. It's not the government that's controlling your life. It's the Lord God Almighty. Now notice, it wasn't just a seat. It wasn't just like a glorified pew. So he saw the throne. And it was incredible. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. It is suggested that because John lived in, a, in an active volcanic area, for Patmos is not very far from Santorini. And some of the, activ the activities that have taken place in that region of Aegean Sea, volcanic reaction, that John is trying to describe the majesty and the authority and the glory of the, of the throne in the context of a volcanic eruption. I don't know if you've ever been near a volcanic eruption, I have. Suddenly the earth began to shake. I mean, said, oh, it's just an earthquake. Suddenly there was this incredible roar. 
Oh, that's more than an earthquake. And suddenly there was a spewing forth of a cloud, which went about 40 or 50,000 feet in the air. And in that cloud, there was fire. And it seemed that across that cloud, there were flashes of lightning go zigzag everywhere. It was terrifying, but it was mesmerizing. You wanted to run, but you couldn't run. Because the awesomeness of the sight. This is John. He's looking at this throne. And the throne seems to be vibrant. Simply because the exuding of energy. Friend, we serve a great and a mighty God. He's awesome in power. Tremendous in authority. Our God is not too small. Our God is not a pygmy. He's the Lord God Almighty, the omnipotent one, the omnipotent one. There can only be one word to describe what John is trying to describe. It's awesome. I saw this happen a few weeks back. I was having coffee, talking to a young guy. He told me something which had happened to him. He began to describe it, with tears rolling down his cheeks. And suddenly he burst forth in tongues. Then he apologized. I said, you don't need to apologize. What you had described was indescribable for you. You couldn't put it in words. And when we know not how to pray as we ought, or when we don't know how to say as we ought, the Spirit himself maketh intercession or speaks through us with groans who cannot be uttered. I said, what you said was made perfect sense. He said, it did. So what did he say? He said, Jesus is wonderful. He said, yeah, that's what I meant. <laughs> the dynamic. But he goes further. As if that was not enough. And before the throne, there were seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. The Orthodox Jewish Bible says it this, there were Shivalapir Kish, there were seven torches of fire burning before the Kes, which are the Shevirachat, which are the spirits of Hashem. Now you would wonder, with all of that activity, with all of that expression of energy, with all that vitality, with all that movement, that everything would be in a state of chaos, wouldn't you? Yet look what it says. And around the throne, the sea like glass. Perfectly calm. Perfectly tranquil. It's as clear as crystal. 
yet it's pacific. This is amazing. So much energy, so much activity, and yet everything calm. Because you see, friend, when you gather around the throne and see the awesomeness of his power, you also become aware of the awesomeness of his peace. Jesus said, my peace give I unto you, not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled. But Lord, you don't, yes, you do. You do know what I'm going on, what's going on in my life. You do know what's, go, what's taking place around me. You know how fearful things become. Yet he whispers, peace. Let the peace of God rule your heart. I don't want the peace of God to rule my heart. I like being agitated. <laughs> because when I'm agitated, I can get other people agitated too. Around the throne. But he goes on. Now up until now, all he simply said was, we've seen the throne. The place of government and power. Also, he underscored the fact that throne is occupied. I am so glad that the throne in heaven is not empty. And yet John doesn't go into any kind of detail except to describe what he exudes. He says in the one verse three, sitting with like a jasper stone and a chameleon and a keshet, the Amman was around the cache and it looked like an emerald. Three colors are revealed very, very clearly. And it's very, very interesting that by using the term Jasper and Carnelian, he's using the first and the last stone on the breastplate of the high priest. You might say, no oh, big deal. Yes, it is a big deal. Because we have noted from other studies that the first and the last are very significant in the context of God. You have the little term used twice in the opening statement of Genesis 1. Barashish, bara, et. Et. A-T. The alpha and the tau. The first and the last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Hashemayim et haaretz, the heavens and the earth. Et or eighty, the beginning and the end. From the opening statement of the book of God, 
we have this incredible expression that God is the beginning and God is the completion of everything. And this is the one who's sitting on the throne. He can't be voted out of office. He cannot be impeached. And he certainly can't be impugned. What a mighty God we serve. Look at the three colors. You have the color of a diamond, jasper. You have the ruby red stone of a sardis or chameleon, odim, in the Hebrew term. And you've got the rainbow, which is Magnificent in its emerald shade. Those speak of the three characteristics of the one who is on the throne. The brilliance of a diamond speaks of light. Without light, you cannot have anything else. What was one of the first things that took place in the book of Genesis? And the earth was without form and void and darkness upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be Jasper. And there was light. Sardis, ruby red, speaks of life. Because what the scripture says, and the life is in the blood. And what color is blood? Unless you're the Queen of England and you got blue, royal blue blood, everybody else got red. <laughs> and so does she, because we've all come from one blood. Made and created by the Lord God Almighty. Ah. We understand that. But what about the rainbow of emerald? If you have light, if you have life, we also have love. The rainbow of emerald speaks of grace and mercy. You see, there is no way that we could feel comfortable coming before the throne of glory. It's too blinding. It's too brilliant. It's too piercing. Our sense will be that of, woe is me, like that said by Isaiah. But we are not invited to come before the throne of glory. We are told to come boldly before the throne of grace. There to find grace to help in time of need. Grace, the emerald rainbow. Ah, but this rainbow is unique. In time, we see the ark. Sometimes we see a double ark. What best? We see a semicircle. 
at the throne, it completely surrounds the throne. The rainbow was given as a promise. Let me suggest to you, no matter what you think the promise of God to you is, no matter how beautiful, no matter how big, in its fulfillment, it's seen at the throne, not just seen in time. The promise is complete around the throne. In time, we see a partial, we see a semicircle, but around the throne, we see the complete orb. The promises of God, which are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, are complete. When you stand before, and when you bow before, Hey, well, obviously that didn't mean anything to you, so let me go on. <laughs> and then before the throne, there were 24 other thrones. I don't have time to talk about that. Let me close by speaking of the, of the ministry. We've looked at the mystery, the open door. We've looked at the majesty, the glory of the throne, the government, and the governor. Now look at the ministry. Because these verses underscore the heavenly format of worship. Now the word worship comes from the old English term worth-ship. And worth-ship denotes value and worth. But with the passing of time, those two words were connected to become worship, not just worship. And when you talk about worship, it means different things to different people, doesn't it? What does worship? How is worship evidenced at the highest place before the throne? There should be, I should talk about seven things. I'll just talk about three or four. Look, first of all, at the eminence of worship. Verse 8 simply speaks of the four living beings who are around the throne. And it says, day and night, they never stop saying. And what do they say? They glorify the Lord. Worship is always linked to revelation. The more you know of the Lord, the greater the depth of worship. Worship is not just singing a, a cute little ditty. About worship, it speaks of exalting and magnifying and extolling the one who sits 
upon the throne, the eminence of worship. It's so important to these four living beings who are the closest to the throne. And yet they continuously giving praise and honor to the one who sits on the throne, the eminence of worship. Look at the excellence of worship. Kadosh, 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 Adonai, Sevaot. Now, Kadosh, or, or holy, is an interesting word. The earliest sages translated it exclusive or otherness. Rashi translated radically different. The late white prior followed the Rashi tradition in simply saying that holiness or holy underscores that God is radically different. There is no other like him. There's no other that can stand in his presence as an equal. He has no peers. He has no superiors. He alone is God. And he's worthy to be praised. The Orthodox Jewish Bible used the term Adonai. Adonai Sebaot. Because they declined to use the majestic covenant name of Yahweh or Yahweh. In its place, they either use Adon, Adonai, or they might even simply just say Hashem. It's the name. And so you hear the term Baruch Hashem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is unique in character. He is unique in compassion. And we've seen by the fact of the rainbow circling the throne, he is unique in commitment. The living beings, the ones closest to the thrones, are the ones who initiate the ministry of worship. The elders who occupy lesser thrones outside the perimeter of the four living beings, they are the ones who respond. They are initiators and they are responders in the arena of worship. Blessed are they who belong to the initiation category. You don't wait for anyone else or anything else out of the fervency of your heart. You can't help but say, I love you, Lord. I honor the King and to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and the glory forever and ever, amen. Whenever the living creatures give glory, 
In the Jewish Bible, they add a term to this verse, which is not found in the Greek text. They, the living creatures give kavod, glory. They use the term hard, translated splendor or honor. Then the word hada, which speaks of majesty. And Shavach, which speaks of praise, is to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever. But look at the extravagance of worship. I need a close. Unlike the living beings who are initiate, the 24 elders are responders. Church, please. If you are not an initiate, an initiator, please be a responder. Don't sit like a, a lump on a log. Don't be a spectator. There's no place for spectators at the time of worship. He is worthy of worship. He's worthy to be praised. So if you are not an initiator, well then respond to those who initiate. Look what happens. These are clothed in Lavan. They're clothed in righteousness. Look at their obedience. Whenever the living creatures give glory, the 24 elders Prostrate before him who sits on the throne and worship him who is God forever. They prostrate face down. This is not time for song and dance, though I believe in songs and dance. There comes a time when true worship is that of humbling oneself and the hand of the Almighty, that he might be exalted. But not only that, look, not just their obeyance, but look at their offering. These 24 elders, they're not only clothed in white raiment and wear a kittle, they also have a crown upon their head. And now they bow down before the one who sits on the throne, they take off their crown, present it to him. They are simply saying, all that I am, all that I have, and all that I ever hope to be is due to you. You alone are worthy to receive the honor of my heart and the honor of my life. But then, I wanted to spend a lot of time in this verse, and I can't, I don't have time. Look at the eloquence of worship. The Orthodox Jewish Bible says it this way, Worthy art thou, Adonai Anelohenu, Lord and God to receive the grandeur 
and Hadar, the splendor, and the odds, the power, because it was your Barach creation and power that created all things. And because they exist and came into being by your atone, by your purpose, and by your will. And so the chapter opens up with an old man, somewhat disappointed because of what he'd heard, the way that the churches had handled the test. But suddenly transported from looking at that which is negative to looking at that which is altogether lovely, altogether wonderful. You remind that God lives forever. God rules forever. And God's promises will last forever. And to that, all we can say is, praise God. Good night.